What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. Don't let them change you. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but it caused me some problems. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode and it's going to be around this kid. We were the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And with that came the expectation and with that came the pressure. New episodes of American Prodigy drop Tuesdays from Blue Wire Podcasts. Sup, 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 Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Pavalli coming at you once more without my fantastic co-host, Adam Frommel. I am, however, excited to keep our look-ahead train a-rolling. We have two teams for you today. First up, we will have Tony Jones of The Athletic on to discuss the Utah Jazz. He covers them and the NBA at large over at The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at TJonesNBA, spelled exactly as it sounds. After him, we will speak with Derek James, who covers the Minnesota Timberwolves for the A Wolf Among Wolves blog, and Canis Hoopus. He also covers the Seattle Storm for the next hoops. Follow him on Twitter as well, at Derek James MBA, spelled exactly as it sounds. How great is that? Some some easy-to-talk-about Twitter handles today. Before we dive in, one, I want to thank everyone for really engaging with our singular team pods. Or I guess we can still call them multi-team pods, but the downloads have been fairly consistent with our league-wide episodes. We hope that you continue to download every episode. If you're listening for the first time, I beg, plead, implore you to subscribe. Download all of our episodes. Whether or not you use iTunes, also head over there, search Hardwood Knox, throw us a rating, write a review. That really helps us as well. Also, we are closing in on 300 reviews. And once we top that, once we get a little ahead of it, there may be an NBA 2K giveaway. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe I'm lying. Am I lying? Who knows? Let's find out. Get us above, comfortably above 300 ratings, and we will see. Um, without further delay, though, let's get to some Utah Jazz with Tony Jones, and then some Minnesota Timberwolves with Derek James. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the Hardwood Knox podcast uh, to talk some Utah jazz with me. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I, pre- I definitely appreciate it. Appreciate the invite. Oh, no, please. We need to talk jazz. Who else who better to bring on than you? Um, so kind of, st- I think the place to start with them is they had like a, it felt like an upkeeping offseason where, you know, you get you uh, extend Donovan Mitchell, you re-sign Jordan Clarkson, you're bringing back uh, Derek Favors. And so I'm just wondering what your overall impression was of the offseason, just the, the body of work that they did relative to, to where they finished last year. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I thought they had a pretty effective offseason. Um, I think there are other people. I think there are people who don't share that same sentiment, but uh, I definitely thought they had a good offseason because I think that they – on paper, of course. Now you have to. Now this has to be proven, you know, once once the games start. But on paper, I mean, they've they've plugged, um, you know, most of their holes. You know, they they were an atrocious team last year when Rudy Gobert was off the floor, and that was right. because they couldn't play 
primarily because they couldn't play the same way when he was off the floor on either end of the floor, on either end of the court. And Derek Favors solves that uh, in spades. Um, he, you know, Favors is still, you're basically, you're essentially getting a guy who's still uh, a, a starting level, starting level player in this league, um, you know, for 15 to 18 minutes a night. Uh, depending on depending on and more depending on the matchup, so you know I think the favors will help uh, the second unit uh, pretty significantly. Um, I thought that uh, the Jazz, you know, lacked a perimeter defender, just a specialist, somebody who could, um, you know, guard for ten minutes a night. And and I think that Shaquille Harrison, that signing helps that uh, immeasurably. Uh, and you know, and the Jazz are counting on continuity I mean they you know they're counting on you know the core of of Mitchell Bogdanovich Conley and, and Gobert being together uh for another year uh really helping uh so you know I, I think this team was was really good through its first eight last year mm -hmm. um and I think that their first eight got better uh this year so we'll see how it works out once once the ball goes in the air and the game starts for real I feel like the criticism has mainly focused on as if they made a choice between adding an athletic wing to like play the, the help out at the four and then just giving the entire ability to Derek Favors. And I think my question there would just be like, where else was that money supposed to go? Maybe you can still question the decision to invest in another big and deciding, you know, hey, we're not going to play a, basically a single minute without an above average center on the court. But I just don't know, like, who was the wing that they were supposed to, that athletic wing they were supposed to sign so if the money wasn't like Derek Favors I think could have just plainly been the best player they were able to get for the money that they had to spend well it's in my opinion that you know I thought that you know adding a defensive wing was was a priority but I thought that but I thought that you know figuring out that the non-Rudy Gobert minutes was hands down far and away the number one issue for the Jazz last year you know, there were, it was, there were so many times where Rudy Gobert would be on the floor for his first nine minutes of his rotation in the first quarter. And, you know, the Jazz would be up, would be up six, uh, when he, six to eight points when he went to the bench. And, you know, four minutes later, five minutes later, they'd be, they'd be down. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's not a defense, that's not a defensive wing issue. That's a, that's a backup big issue for the Jazz, for the way that they play, you know. So for the way that they play, it, it was, you know, Favors was by far was a significantly more pressing issue in 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 my estimation. And plus, the Jazz were smoked last year by one team. And I mean smoked. Mm -hmm. Like there was one team last year that the Jazz just could not compete with, and that was the Lakers. And that's because they did not have the size uh, to deal with with their too big alignment uh, and favors. You know, obviously, you're not going to stop Anthony Davis, but favors helps. You know, you can put favors on Anthony Davis, and that means what that means is Rudy Gobert at the same time does not have to guard Anthony Davis. He can guard whoever the center is. So, you know, those are some subtle things that that favors helps with, and. You know, I get that the Jazz needed a, a defensive wing. Uh, I think that Harrison helps because he can guard 
he can guard at the very least. He can guard point guards and shooting guards. Mm-hmm. Um, Royce O'Neal guards guards small forwards and power forwards. So you know, I I, I think that they, you know, they at least adequate adequately figured out pretty much all of their issues from last year. 2020 has already reshaped how we work and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Well, Indeed is here to help. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of, of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Looking at Donovan Mitchell specifically, did you view like his performance in the bubble as kind of like a, or, you know, particularly in that po- for most of the uh, postseason series against, uh, for most of the postseason, excuse me, like a sort of a, a swing moment for this team because it felt like his official entry into stardom where everyone was waiting to see whether he could have a more um, a- efficient offensive impact in the postseason following his first two two trips there. And then he's just, you know, he's absolutely volcanic through um, most of those playoffs. And so is that just another, uh, you know, when you're looking for improvement from this team where how can they get better if, if Derek Favors was their biggest addition that some of that can actually still come internally because – this is only going to be Donovan Mitchell's um, fourth season and because of the performance that he is working off of. Well, the interesting thing was he had a great postseason the first, the first year, his rookie year. Um, he was, he was, there were arguments that he was the best player in the series against Oklahoma city. Um, uh, obviously that Houston series in a second year was, was, uh, was really rough. Very, very rough. Uh, from a from an efficiency standpoint, from a decision making standpoint, um, but you know the Jazz look at Donovan Mitchell and they think that he has a chance to be become a superstar mm-hmm. uh, at some point in his career, um, and he showed flashes of it. Obviously, now the question is, what part of the bubble, where uh, obviously you know he turned in he and Jamal Murray turned in some historic performances. What part of the bubble translates? Now, Donovan Mitchell shot about 55 to 57%. I, I don't know, off the top of my head, off the dribble threes right. uh, in the bubble. He's not going to shoot that in the right. regular season. That's not going to translate. But what can translate is the decision-making where, you know, he 80% of eight out of 10 times in the bubble, he was making the right decision. Even if the shot missed, he was making the right decision, make or miss, between, you know, whether, you know, he takes the shot or creating for some for somebody else on his team. And I would estimate that that was probably about a six out of ten during the regular season. So, you know, if if the decision making translates, it's very obvious to the Jazz that Donovan Mitchell's best NBA position is going to be a point guard. And that's something that was not uh, anticipated his first couple of years. 
you know, it was like, okay, let's see if he can be a point guard. But he made a, a, a significant leap uh, towards actually becoming a franchise point guard. And so now the Jazz feel, okay, you know, Mike Conley can play the point and Donovan Mitchell can play the point, and they're fine both ways. Um, so, you know, I, I think the Jazz are pretty bullish on Donovan and what he can and what he can become uh, going forward. That's kind of the vision of him as a point guard, and he did. He spent a lot of time there last year, and a big part of that, I'm sure, was because Mike Conley missed a bunch of time. But you also look at the makeup of this roster, and it feels like that is sort of how they envision him because they can stagger him and um, Conley um, a bunch, and then they also just really don't have like you know you don't identify someone who's definitely going to get the like as a backup point guard. Like you're not going to want Jordan Clarkson in that role. Um, you know, maybe Joe Ingles is a primary playmaker. Those lineups can be strained, and so when you just look at the the makeup of um, the secondary part of this roster, it, it makes you feel even more like they believe that uh, his long-term position is going to be that point guard spot. Yeah, well, this is about design, you know, because if if the Jazz didn't feel like Donovan Mitchell was a point guard, they would have probably gone out and gotten one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reason why they went out and got Emmanuel Moutier um, last year, one of the reasons. Um, but, you know, it's, it's uh, one of those things right now where the Jazz feel like, okay, you know, once we're all, you know, assuming good health, you know, you have terrific point guard play for 48 minutes and assuming good health, you have terrific center play uh, for 48 minutes and you can mix and match uh, the rest uh, because, you know, there are enough spare, there are enough interchangeable parts where the jazz can be, you know, really flexible. Um, you know, so, so I, I definitely think that, um, you know, I definitely think that they're counting on uh, Mitchell being able to to to, to log big minutes uh, at the one spot and to be able to, you know, do everything that that comes with that, which is you know, create for himself, create for others, but also, you know, defend out of that spot and and you know and and manage and manage a game as well, which is, you know, frankly where he lacked uh, where he lacked the first couple of years. Is having a let's just if he's healthy for more of the year than he was last season, is Mike Conley like almost like close to in addition for this team just because of you know how many games he did miss, but then like some of the inconsistency he battled with? I felt like he did close the year stronger. And so, if you have him, you know, you don't need to lean on him as much, I guess, if you're gonna maybe even close games with Mitchell at the one or just have Mitchell at the one a bunch. But having him healthy, does that end up even with you know, and Boyan Bogdanovich, him coming back from wrist surgery? it feels like there's still an element of this team that we just didn't get to see last season. And so when everyone says like, Oh, they didn't make enough changes or they didn't add enough talent, like to know that we didn't see like Mike Conley at full strength and certainly in the bubble, we didn't have Bogdanovich there uh, at all. Uh, is that like something that factors into this team ceiling this season? Well, I, I wouldn't call Mike Conley an addition. I thought he was pretty darn good in the bubble. Um, and, you know, I think the jazz did as well. Obviously he started rough, um, he had injury issues. He had some real acclimation issues uh, into, into, you know, how do I play with Donovan Mitchell? Because he never played with another dynamic ball handler before. He never played with a guy that could play with the ball in his hands like Donovan Mitchell can. I mean, he was always playing with Tony Allen types. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that there was some real acclimation issues uh, with, with, uh, with, with Mike. And they ironed him out by the end of the year, you know, towards, 
you know, towards the end of the season, right before the COVID-19 shutdown, you know, they figured out how to stagger uh, Mitchell and Conley to the point where, okay, they're playing minutes together, but they're also playing minutes uh, on their own where both of those guys are running their own team. And now those two guys know, you know, what to expect. So, you know, I thought Conley was really good in the bubble. And um, I thought that he was, had started to get better towards the end of the regular season. Now, Bogdanovich, obviously, we didn't see him in the bubble at all. Um, so, you know, if, if, if you say, if you were to say, hey, Mitchell's going to improve, you know, go from a guy that's like 24 a night to a guy that's about 26, 27, 5 and 5, something like that. Mm-hmm. And Bogdanovich is still a guy that's, that's giving you, you know, 20 a night. then guess what? The Jazz are going to be pretty darn good offensively between Conley, Mitchell, and Bogdanovich. Um, and then, you know, obviously you add in Rudy Gobert's uh, finishing at, ability to finish at the rim. You're adding Joe Ingles shooting, and you're adding uh, Jordan Clarkson's ability to come off the bench and, and be a terrific six-man. So the, the component, what the Jazz looked at all-encompassing was, okay, we have a chance to be one of the best offenses in the league. Mm-hmm. But our ceiling is going to be our defense, which is ironic enough because the Jazz were always, you know, a top three defense until last year to where they dropped to the, to all the way down to the middle of the pack. So if the, the, if the Jazz can figure out a way uh, to be one of the top, you know, six or seven offenses in the league, but also one of the top 10 defenses in the league, the way they figure it, they're going to win a lot of games this year or they're going to have a chance to win a lot of games this year. Um, I do think part, it felt like part of their offensive success, at least like that, that trade uh, mid season for Jordan Clarkson, um, it seemed like he sort of saved their bench. Do you view his like performance in Utah from last year as replicable where you, you know, it's four years and 52 million. Like, is that a comfortable price point for what he's bringing to the table? Because his shot making was, you know, almost from all over was, was basically at, at a career high level last year. Um, you know, even, I think even before he went to Utah. Well, obviously, by any measure that you can you can think of, Jordan Clarkson had a career season last year. Um, you know, he was, you know, he's obviously figured out his NBA niche, which is he's he's a high octane six man. Uh, you know, he made shots from all over the place. Um, like you said, he saved he saved the Jazz bench uh, in large measure. Um, you know, so the question is. All right, you know, here's the old the old adage is you're always gonna perform great in the contract year, right? Mm-hmm. So now this is not a contract year. You have, you know, all of the security that you want, you have fifty-two million dollars, you have a, a, a four-year contract. Now the question is, can he keep up that consistency? And that's something that, that Jordan's gonna have to go out and prove. He's gonna have to, you know, go out and, and, and prove that, you know, this is this is who he is. And you know, and the, the Jazz are confident that he can do that, um, but he still has to go out and, and, and do that. How does the, um, like you mentioned at sort of the top of this podcast, the Jazz a top eight got better and is really strong. How does sort of like, who are the next guys like outside those top eight to, to keep an eye on? Because they're not going to, you know, once you get to the playoffs, you probably, you're okay with going eight deep, but I would assume they're not planning on going just 
those A players deep in, in every single game. So who are those other guys on this roster that are going to be regular parts of the rotation and, and have a chance to make an impact or who they really need to make um, an impact? So George Yang was in their top eight last year. He's now your ninth. ninth. Um, Jawan Morgan, who the Jazz are really high on, uh, he probably becomes your 10th. And Mia Yoni, uh, the second year um, wing out of Yale, uh, he becomes your 11th probably. And the Jazz are high on him as well. Um, you know, Oni and, and Morgan, you know, are two guys that, that played in the G League for most of the year last year. Uh, they developed. Uh, we know Morgan because he started a couple of games uh, in the playoff series against Denver. Um, you know, so uh, if those two pan out, and we know what George George Niang does. He he's he's you know a forty percent three point shooter. Right. He's floor. He's a ball mover and he's a floor spacer. Uh, so you know those are your your next three after after the first eight, and then you know you look at you know Udoka Azabuki Azabuki, who's you know Utah's first round draft pick. Uh, I think he's going to get some time because. You know, you can't expect both of Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert to play all 72 games. Mm -hmm. So there are going to be there are going to be games where he's going to have rotation minutes and the Jazz are high. Well, at least offensively, they're high on uh, Elijah Hughes, the, the rookie wing out of Syracuse. Uh, they think that he can play at least offensively. They think he can play right now. Um, they think that he, you know, still has a, he's going to have a learning curve defensively on the other end, but offensively, they think that he can play. He's, he's a good shooter. He's a good athlete. He's good with the ball in his hands. Uh, and, and, you know, he's putting the ball on the deck in, in camp and, and he's making plays. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see those guys in the preseason, mm -hmm. um, you know, because I think that uh, through the, the first three preseason games, I, I'm, I, I would, I would imagine that a lot of those young guys get, uh, get a chance to do some things. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins vision odds and championship futures all day every day head to bet online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses don't forget to use promo code blue wire all one word at betonline.ag that's blue wire all one word bet online your online sportsbook experts the uh and i know that their closing lineups a lot of it will be matchup based but when you look at like specifically their top six guys it feels like there's a lot of different ways that you could build out um lineups there so what do you envision or think will end up being their most common or you know most used or most effective um, crunch time lineup next year um it will probably be mike conley uh donovan mitchell uh joe ingles uh boyan bogdanovich and and uh rudy gobert and then you you know depending on the matchup you swap out joe ingles and, and royce o'neill um but you know those six um, you know, those are, those are going to be your guys that, that close most of the nights. Is there any chance that we see like instances where maybe you remove Conley and use Mitchell at the one in those scenarios, or is that kind of, uh, you know, take away too much shot creation? 
no, they, the the Jazz like Conley, and you know that's that you know it's 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 almost comical, you know, you know that I read the Conley takes online and on Twitter, you know, knowing how the Jazz feel about him internally. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Jazz really like him, and they really think he they think he's really good. So, you know, he's to the Jazz, he's unquestionably one of their top five players. You know, so I, I would expect him to be uh, firmly in the close in the closing lineups uh, for for most of the season, if not all of the season. Is there, um, and this is more obviously your preference based, like a quirky lineup you could see them trying, like a little bit offbeat at some point in the season, not necessarily in crunch time, but just at any point, maybe like a a, a smaller unit because they have these these bigs who are in favors and Gobert who could probably take up pretty much every single minute of most games when they're healthy or just any lineup that you're particularly interested in seeing from this team leading into next season? Yeah. You know, I, 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 you know, it's going to be interesting to see how much time Jawan Morgan gets. Um, you know, I can, I can see there would be some lineups where, you know, certain guys are out. He even, he even ascends to the starting lineup. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because, uh, the numbers show that he plays really well in his minutes with Rudy Gobert. Um, so, you know, that that's something that, you know, you watch out for. It'll be interesting to see, you know, you can't expect Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley to play all 72 games concurrently. Right. Uh, so on the nights that, you know, one of those guys are out, um, you know, um, how much time, you know, do you play Shaq Harrison? How much time do you, you know, do you give me a on a shot? Um, you know, the, the, I think the thing, you know, at least on paper, because we could say the same thing last year on paper, on paper, on paper. And then, you know, when it, when the ball went up, it, it didn't really pan out, but on paper, um, the jazz can, can go a lot of ways with a lot of matchups. They can go, um, bigger if they want to play Rudy Gobert and Derek, Derek favors together. Uh, they can go smaller. Um, you know, they can, they can throw, you know, Donovan Mitchell at the point guard and mm-hmm. throw a lot of wings at you. Uh, they have a lot of shooting. Uh, they have a lot of playmaking, uh, as well. They just have a lot of guys who can dribble pass and shoot. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see, uh, um, how they stack up this year. This is, and it's tough to say, um, impossible to say without actually seeing the games. And there are, you know, they're, they're not the most flexible team. They're hard capped. Uh, but if, you know, you get to a point midseason and it's just clear that maybe they don't necessarily have like the athletic juice at the wing spots to worry about prospective um, playoff series against, you know, a few different opponents in the West. Is that, can you see this team, you know, just looking at the contracts they have, they do have some movable pieces could you see a scenario where they're making a midseason change or do you think that they've I think every team maybe or most good teams maybe have the intention of sticking with who they have and but overall do you just see them maybe not so inclined um, to make any sort of moves this season or, or could you see them being willing to adjust if again that that athletic juice um, defensively isn't there on the wings no they're definitely willing to adjust if you know if if they see that they're not they're not good enough um I think the passes has has told us that, right? You know, their bench their bench sucked the first couple mm-hmm. of months of the season last year. So, you know, they made a move to to bolster the bench. Uh, you know, they they recognized that uh Jeff Green and Ed Davis were not working 
So, you know, they, they outright released Jeff Green and, 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 you know, they, they demoted that Davis to, to, uh, to, to third string. So, you know, they've, they've, they've proven in the past that, you know, they're, they're an aggressive front office, um, you know, so if, if, if the Jazz don't uh, use their 15th spot, and I'm not anticipating that they will, uh, if they keep that 15th spot open, it, it'll be uh, interesting to see uh, what they do at the trade deadline if, if the need precipitates. What do you think, um, you know, maybe assuming that there isn't any big changes to this roster, what's a realistic, um, you know, win total for them this year or just um, place to angle for in the, in the Western Conference hierarchy? Uh, I think they can play with any team in the West um, outside of the Lakers in, in a playoff series. Um, I think that the Lakers are the one team are probably the only team in the West that if they got into a series with the Jazz, I would, I would make them significant. I would make the Jazz significant underdogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other team, I, you know, the Jazz will either be a slight underdog or they'd be right there with them or they'd be an outright favorite. Um, you know, so there are so many good teams in the West that I, I think that the Jazz have, have a, a ceiling and a floor. Um, and I think that it's wide, wide ranging. Like, I think they can finish all the way in, in, in at, they could finish all the way at number two if everything goes right and they have good health and they play really well uh, and the parts really mesh. And I think they can finish as low as six if, if uh, things don't go right. You know, the thing about the Jazz is, you know, they have too much talent and too much depth and too many good players to finish out to not make the playoffs. And, you know, and, and I don't think that they're going to struggle to make the playoffs. Right. Uh, so that's why I would think that six would be their floor. Um, but, you know, I do think that, uh, on paper, in my opinion, I think that this is the best team that I have seen Quinn Snyder and Dennis Lindsay put the, and Justin Zanuck put together. Uh, so it'll be interesting, but that's only on paper. You got to go out and, and play. So it'll be interesting to see if, if, if that all meshes once, once everything starts to count. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you said, the West is just so complicated because there's even an element of how much will the Lakers and the Clippers like really be committed to um, like the regular season. Like, I feel like those are two teams that might not care as much about playoff seeds. And so uh, you could probably expand the Jazz's scope like even a little bit further. And there's, you know, um, what if, you know, Stephen Curry remains healthy with Golden State? What if KP gets healthy and plays well? And in Dallas, they're just so what if James Harden isn't traded out of Houston? Um, they're so like it almost feels like one through seven this year could end up being any combination that you imagine. Yeah, and you know, and then not only is there the injury component, but there's the COVID nineteen component. Yeah, of course. Um, now, it'll the one thing I am interested in is with uh, the the news of a, a vaccine now being available. Um, surprisingly, uh, right now, uh, what is the hierarchy for the NBA and for the NFL and, and for, you know, NCAA basketball for their players, for their guys and their personnel to get vaccinated? Um, because if, you know, you can vaccinate those guys rather quickly, if those guys, um, and girls and and men and women, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if they, you know, 
if they qualify to be at or near the top of 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 the food chain, uh, for lack of a better word, um, you know, in terms of in terms of uh, qualifying for the vaccine, then you know, the sports leagues, the major sports leagues, can can um, can I don't want to say rid themselves, but they can protect themselves right. uh, a lot uh, better against uh, against the pandemic uh, than than before. Uh, this last question is like not so much pertaining to the court, but I do think it speaks to like what type of urgency the Jazz would have this season. And they'll have urgency anyway, just because a lot of, you know, some of the players on this team, Conley, um, Ingles, uh, Bogdanovich, they are getting up there in years. But do you think there's any chance we get a Rudy Gobert extension? Um, or is this more of a wait until the offseason type of situation at this point? No, nah, it's 50 50. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's going to go down to the wire. Uh, I know there's an offer on the table. Um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, there's, there's going to be some counter offers and, you know, there's going to be some, some negotiating. So, uh, I think that it's one of those things that it's going to go, uh, down to, to, to the last day and then we'll see what happens there. And I know that bigs are valued like so differently and people think that you can approximate them on, on the cheap more so. And I think that's true to some extent, but if, if I am Rudy Gobert, like, you saw a, a different positions, but a player like Gordon Hayward get four years and so much money in a cap poor market. And next year, there's just going to be like a few more teams, a bunch more teams with spending power that you have to believe, you know, the saying that it only takes one team, like there might be three teams that uh, could go high for Gobert. And again, I know it's, you know, centers more of the oversaturated position, but I'm just wondering if something like that factors into his thinking or even the Jazz's thinking at all, because it feels like it's a higher threat level after watching that in this type of market that a team would go after, um, you know, a defensive perennial defensive player of the year in his prime, who is, who is a defensive system unto himself. Yeah. Well, I mean, it only takes one. And then, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that, I think that NBA decision makers think differently than, you know, what, what we on Twitter think. And, you know, we can say that center's an oversaturated market, but it was literally just proven that it's not <laughs> uh, during the playoffs. Hashtag Mason. Because, oh, yeah, yeah. Because the Lakers bludgeoned everybody uh, on both ends of the floor because they had so much size and nobody else had the size to match up with them. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that, you know, once you once – you, you know, get if, if Rudy Gobert got to unrestricted free agency, uh, I think that there would be a market for him. Uh, and I think that there would be competition with the Jazz. And so, you know, I know the Jazz are offering him a lot of money. You know, they want to, uh, they want, they, they're clear that they want him to be uh, with the organization for the rest of his career. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks. Is there anything I didn't, ass that I glossed over that you wanted to talk about or something that's just nationally not recognized about this team or off the mark about them anything along those lines no I think this was was really good very thorough interview from my guy (laughs) well thank you so much Tony I appreciate you um coming on for anyone who's not already following you on Twitter uh what are you doing remedy that immediately um, at T Jones on the NBA spelled exactly as it sounds. He covers the Utah jazz and the NBA for the athletic. Um, Tony, again, thank you so much for, for giving me your time. And, um, I'm sure I'll be pestering you again down the line. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. And I, I really appreciate me.
you. I appreciate you. <laughs> Welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast, Eric. It has been uh, many minutes, I guess, as the kids would say at this point, over a year since your last appearance, but I'm happy we were able to sync up again to talk some Timberwolves. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Dan. I think it's now like our annual tradition. How are you doing? I'm doing well. No complaints relative to everything that's happening in the world over here. Um, how has it been? Has it been like an adjustment? This is like totally not really related to the Timberwolves, but covering the team and like um, you're, you know, you're doing all these interviews and now stuff like via just remotely like these videos. How big of a difference has that been like uh, for coverage? Um, it's so like the really unique thing is that you're now in these rooms with all these different people. Right. Um, like for instance, in today's Wolves Zoom with Carl Anthony Towns, like Malika Andrews is in there, and I think you know, like Malika Andrews probably isn't going to Timberwolves Media Day before any regular season, right? So you're in these really um, unique situations. You're going to be in these places with other people, but it's definitely a little different. Uh, you know, not being elbow to elbow and you know three feet from the player, <laughs> which you know now seems like a horrifying thing to do. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of used to it at this point after nine months between Lynx and Storm and Timberwolves. And like, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of just becoming life. Uh, I'm interested. And I don't mean that to say like that I support, like want things to, you know, stay the same with how they're being run. I, I feel like some of these policies, like particularly in the locker room, like when looking at the asset access, I'm wondering how much of it like sort of holds over and trickles over into a post-pandemic world, which is at this point a world that I can't really imagine, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think I've talked to a few people who have wondered the same thing. I'm just like fellow media people are like, you know, they probably would like us to be, you know, less hands-on and, you know, on the day-to-day stuff. Yeah, um, so I know like some guys, you know, especially like those Friday nights after games, no one wants to talk to you. Like they want to get out there and enjoy their night. And when they do like the pre-game like availability in the locker room, but like where it's not real availability, like no one there are a couple players um being in New York, like having been around the the uh Nets and Knicks and like some of the visiting teams. Like yeah, there are some players that are like cool with it, but like no one wants to talk to you before the game when they're either trying to concentrate or just like enjoying the few moments of peace that they're actually going to get before the circus begins. At least no rotation guy. Like I remember about five years ago, I was looking to talk to Ed Davis and Blazers. I was like, oh, he's in there. Go find him. It's like, All right, thanks. Um, so I go in there and he's in his like, I don't know what the leg suit thing's called. Um, but it's his headphones on sitting on the floor. I'm like, this guy's just doing his thing and getting loose for the game. Like, I'm not going to go talk to him. Like, this was not well organized. <laughs> right. And that's <laughs> yeah. like, uh, when I had the opportunity to opt out of like, I haven't done like onsite game coverage in um, like three years now. So like, it's not related to the pandemic necessarily at all. When I had the chance to opt out, like I, I did because day to day, I felt like such a nuisance to these guys. So I admire anyone who can actually re- like do the daily coverage and like, you know, go through the scrums. I don't know. Like I'm just not you can use the word persistent enough or too much of a coward. So I guess do that. Like I, I, after like two years of doing it, I was like, you know what this, I can't like, I feel like I'm invading upon every single moment of their lives, even when we have an interview scheduled. And so this is just not for me. And I think it depends on your job too. I mean, like if you're like more, I guess maybe more traditional media or something, you know, where it's like, it's your job to be there every single day, practice, shoot around. And, you know, then I think that's a little different where like, it's your job, but like, yeah, I can understand sometimes not wanting to do that because I've certainly felt that where my guess really doesn't matter as much. 
Yeah, no, at the time too, it was like um, I was mainly doing the Nets, and they were like treating like Isaiah Whitehead like he had state secrets. And so, like, oh, you get to a point where it's like, what, what am I trying to do? Um, <laughs> I did bring you on though to talk about the 2020 2021 Timberwolves, though. And I think the best place to start is just what was your general impression of the Wolves' offseason from, you know, drafting Anthony Edwards at number one, Rubio is back. Um, they re-signed Hernan Gomez and Malik Beasley, the latter of which received a lot more money than I was expecting them to. But what was your general impression? Anything that stands out that you liked, disliked? Well, so I actually have liked this front office's philosophy of acquiring NBA players. Um, I said the same thing <laughs> last offseason. They didn't really fit, but it's like you were like, okay, well, these guys, you know, they're at least NBA players. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know, Trevor and Graham. Or Jordan Bell have jobs right now. But, you know, at the time, you're like, hey, these are rotation guys. Like, these are guys who can play on a team. And I think you feel that way now about, especially this year. I mean, the Timberwolves, one way or another, have no shortage of lead ball handlers with Ricky Rubio coming back. Right. And, I mean, he has his flaws, but I think there's, you know, at least something to be said for that. I mean, there's a glut of wings. Um, I think I would have liked them to find another front course core piece um i mean ed davis and um, ronda hollis jefferson are you know good depth pieces but like you know i don't think they're going to move the needle a ton but i think adding a little more impactful depth there i mean given their cap restraints that wasn't easy to do but i think that's about the only thing you really could have realistically wished for the i think the biggest thing they did just because of the nature of what that pick is supposed to represent is taking anthony edwards and i found it interesting while edwards was in the mix for the number one pick all year. And there were times where it seemed like he was a favorite. And I think when you look at fit, um, he made more functional sense, I think, than definitely Wiseman and probably LaMelo as well. But there was like this huge chunk of time leading up to it where it felt like it was going to be LaMelo to the extent where, so the Wolves were either going to keep the pick and take him or move it. Um, were you actually surprised at where they landed? Do you like the the Edwards pick? Um, just what are, what are your thoughts on that and how that played out? So I hadn't really dove into the draft at all um, much before the draft. Like I listened to podcasts here and there and like, I kind of knew about the guys a little bit. I was of the belief that even though James Wiseman said, Oh no, I won't go to Minnesota. I won't play in Minnesota. Having learned from DeMarcus cousins, not being a Timberwolf because he wouldn't work out for them or Steph Curry refusing to work out for them. And then the team not choosing them for those reasons. I'm like, well, you just take this guy anyway. If he's your guy, I mean, mm -hmm. He doesn't play. He doesn't play. And you you always have the option of trading him um, then. So that didn't really matter to me. I think Ball would have been a fine ball hander. But I think the Anthony Edwards pick is the home run pick. I, I think just with all the things that he's able to do and just his abilities, he really looks like he could be a really impactful player down the road. And I think that's something that, like, if you think that he has the highest upside, at that spot, I think that's what you're aiming for, and you don't just settle for the safest pick there. Yeah, and um, I, I think too. I know people aren't concerned with like necessarily fit. You're, you're just supposed to draft the best player available that high, but I just feel like the fit is so much clearer. And um, he still, I know the Wolves kind of have like, and we'll we'll get to this. They're like sort of towing this line between immediate aspirations, but they're not necessarily there yet. Um, I I appreciate the sentiment of the big swing, even if it doesn't work out and I think the biggest criticism with him was people didn't think that he had this great feel for the game and like you like I was 
I said I was like shin deep in draft coverage. Like it's just not something I pick <laughs> up until right before the the draft itself. Um, if that's really the problem, like that's a player that you can try and groom to do more off ball stuff. And so maybe it's not as like this wonky ball dominant fit when you have all these other playmakers on the team as well. I think one thing um, Edwards and um, his coach at Georgia, Tom Crean, talked about was how much uh, of an emphasis playing off the ball was. You just look at like how physically dominant he is for his age and his size. And there were some moments where it's like, like you, he has these plays where he's locked in and, you know, he looks unstoppable on both ends, you know, and then other moments where it's like, well, what are you doing? You know, like, how can this be the same player? And, and sometimes I just wonder, like, are you bored? Like, are you just sort of realize that, you know, like you're too good for these guys and it's just hard to stay engaged. Um, but I think that's easy to see, um, you know, him getting himself motivated like that. I feel like the Timberwolves showing him like, Hey, this is what we think you could be. I think that's uh, inspiring to a player. Um, and I think that a lot of the comparisons to Andrew Wiggins, having spent so much time around Andrew Wiggins, aren't really, uh, it's not a good comparison. Um, <laughs> I always thought that Andrew has a very laid back personality. He's very soft spoken. Anthony Edwards seems more, you know, like he wouldn't be afraid to be the face of the franchise. If it came down to it, I think he's, he's, his personality seems more assertive than Andrews. Right. And I think that's a really important distinction to have between the two players. Uh, So, I mean, but the thing is like, I don't think you can say like, Oh, he's gonna have. They can get this coach. They can get this player that's gonna motivate him. I mean, it's it. He, I mean, Edwards himself has acknowledged that the effort thing is an issue. I wish he would stop saying it every chance he had, but and actually just go out there and just show it because the only one who can motivate him consistently is going to be him. Now that he's a professional. Do you play stock in like the um, the comments that he made like pre-draft where it says I don't. I can't even remember what it was verbatim, but where it said like he didn't necessarily choose basketball, basketball chose him or something where people thought like he just wasn't committed enough to it. I find it like, and people went through this stuff with a mellow ball saying he doesn't interview well. I find it like really hard to place actual stock in things like that. So with that, with Edwards in particular, I think, so like if you just read that out of context or if you didn't finish the rest of the piece, it would be, it's more concerning. It, it seems more concerning than it really is. Uh, I think, you know, him saying like, oh, you know, if I, if all things equal, I would choose football. I mean, it's like, I mean, fine. Like, I mean, Jimmy Butler walked around the football and has talked about wanting to play football, but nobody questions Jimmy Butler's love for <laughs> basketball because we know he's in the gym every morning at three 30 in the morning. You know, so like, <laughs> there's the difference. Like Jimmy Butler can say that and we all just laugh and go, ah, Jimmy, but Anthony Edwards hasn't earned that part of it yet. And not that he can't say that because really it doesn't matter as long as he's, you know, playing basketball. But I think the thing with him saying like he doesn't casually watch basketball, it's because like you watch him with like Jonathan Gavani breaking down um, his own game. He's able to recall these plays, understand all the different actions and all the different options on that play, what worked, why it didn't work, and call them out ahead of someone like Gavani. So it's clear like he puts in the work watching this film and spends the time in the film room so much. I don't think that like just casually watching, you know, um, NBA on TNT does much for him. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, like I can't really fault the guy for that when he, you know, kind of makes this more of a craft than a casual hobby like the rest of us. We don't do this every day. Whatever the rest of us do for our day job, we don't go home probably and casually watch something right. related to that, except for the very small Jimmy Butler like 
group among us. Um, so yeah, I, I don't worry a ton about that. Uh, I do want to see the engagement and not just see those, you know, careless lapses where, you know, he falls asleep at the wheel. Um, I think those are kind of two different things. I don't think that he like hates basketball or anything. I think that's totally fair. And my last question on him would be, do you see him playing at least, you know, out of the gate, uh, a serious role where they're going to give him like, uh, well, let's say like a long rope um, to to play and go through the motions, make mistakes? Or do you think that they might try and bring him along more gradually in part because I'm sure they want to be in the thick of that Western Conference playoff slash play-in race? Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the ultimate question, right? We don't know when this team is going to play where and how often, especially with, you know, Russell and Rubio where, you know, like, okay, well, Rubio's played a little off the ball, which, you know, isn't ideal, but I understand he's grown as a player. Since he was last in Minnesota, Russell's played off the ball a little bit. Um, you know, it, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of competition for minutes. And like you talked about Malik Beasley just got a new deal. And they're fine minutes for him too. Josh Okogie is going to fit in there somehow. I think what one weird ro- um, roster, one weird lineup I possibly heard was like Okogie at the four or something. Ooh. And that would, I mean, he's got a lot of length. I mean, I think he has about a seven foot wingspan of like six, six or six, five or something ridiculous. Um, so he can do that. But so I think there are ways to get him in some creative lineups and maybe some more traditional lineups. Um, but I think they do have the luxury, you know, if he's, you know, I think if you, only they will really know where he's at. I mean, you know, if he's struggling and, you know, it's like, okay, well, we're going to wreck this kid's confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, they don't, they don't have to have him out there for 30 minutes a night, which is nice. Um, but I think like, yeah, he just needs to play through it. And, you know, he just needs to fall on his face a few more times and pick himself up. Then like they can, yeah, they can find places for him there too. So I think it's a good fit in that sense too. Even if, you know, as we said, like fit isn't the most important thing with a draft pick. Yeah, and so you sort of already touched upon like where I'm going with this, but so Cat and D'Angelo Russell barely played together last season because of um, Cat missing the the rest of the year. Uh, they played 61 possessions together, which is uh, very much not a lot. And on paper, though, I don't you don't need to worry about their offensive fit. Um, do you think though, after drafting Edwards, having Culver, Culver getting Rubio, that they've complicated that fit at all now by having so many people used to operating on ball, or does that something that doesn't really concern this team? Yeah, it's. I mean, at some point, I mean, it feels like there's got to be an odd man out uh, with that, especially I think Culver um, with his season, um, not ever not being fully happy with the way that I think things went for him as a total last year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's be a lot of willingness to adapt, and I think different ways of finding ways to keep him involved because um, he kind of feels like the odd man out, which is odd to say about a guy who is just one year removed from being a lottery pick. That doesn't happen a lot. Um, yeah. So I think it's really hard to know, especially without having, you know, seen training camp and heard about any like scrimmage lineups and, or having any preseason yet. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot of really fascinating stuff to kind of sort of make that fit work and toy with that. So what should the expectations be for Culver? This season, it does seem, you know, he went through one season and it, it feels like a lot of just people, if you're looking at like Twitter or even stuff that's being written or just out on him. And I'm wondering how much of that one has to do with just maybe the backdrop of how he was acquired, where they gave up Sarich and uh, what was that number nine uh, or number 11 to get him 11, whatever it yeah. ended up being. And so like they just held him to a higher bar because he did shoot 38% from three over his final 
30 games on when I wrote this to you, I said not insignificant volume because it clearly wasn't like a ton. And so I'm just wondering if that gives him when you're looking at the struggles he has to create separation on the ball anyway, I know they used him some at the one, like, does it just make it maybe more of a cleaner fit for him off the ball now that he has all these other creators around him? Yeah, I think that's one thing that I looked at with Edwards too, where, you know, it's like, because they have Russell and Rubio, you know, these other guys, you know, point, learning point guard in the NBA is difficult. You know, just like playing up front is tough too. But learning how to run an offense against NBA point guards is really difficult. Um, Parker's like everyone is so good and so athletic and there's so much to take in. Um, but I think this is a way like with Edwards, they can slow it down and say, hey, you're going to learn this position this year. Like this is your spot. Um, you might handle the ball sometimes, but maybe, you know, like Culver just cuts and spots up and that works. Um, I haven't, I didn't totally like, you know, I haven't looked really much into Culver shooting, like how he got a lot of those shots, but I think simplifying it and keeping it easy for him would be just a great way to build some confidence and kind of figure out too, like, you know, what they really have in him and, you know, where he fits long-term because, you know, in theory, I mean, Joshua Kogi doesn't really ever strike me as someone who's going to be an offensive player more than someone who's just great at leaking out in transition mm-hmm. um, for a lob. Like that seems like something that Kogi can do or, you know, points off steals and things like that. Uh, but Culver seems like a guy who should be able to create more for himself. And I mean, it certainly seems like he has all the tools to do that. Uh, just whether I guess we'll see that, you know, in the NBA will depend, but there are definitely ways I think that they can, carve out a role for him especially you know like we don't know what's gonna happen this season uh, yeah and having all that depth you know could come in handy i mean you know heaven forbid if anyone has a positive test you know and can't play like there might be a lot of minutes for guys who aren't really expecting it that's just a tough thing um in evaluating these and he was you were you know to your point about the shot type that culver was taking like he was taking more catch and shoot looks during that time while I was looking it up, but like he, mm-hmm. his percentages were actually inflated by the unassisted three pointers because he hit those in small value and went like a ridiculously high clip. Um, but it, you mentioned an interesting point that it, I like. I don't know. You don't. I don't know how to juggle it when talking about team previews. But if someone has a positive COVID test and like misses two weeks, that's under the current schedule like eight games. Like that can really just like put an entire season on tilt, especially if it's not just one player. And so maybe that's where the, you know, I think there's something, I guess, quirky about the Timberwolves depth, depth where it feels like there's still holes, but then there's also like a lot of overlap somehow, but maybe that's not right. as big of a problem this year because you're going to need that um, interchangeability or just body count more so than ever. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that Gerson Rosas has been trying to build in general is just this really versatile, long athletic, team that you know it's really a group of basketball players like Anthony Edwards said he could play one through three Josh Okogie can defend probably one through four pretty capably um so you have all these wings that can do a lot and Culver is not small you know there should be you know the tools there for him to have that same versatility so I think there's a lot to like in that sense it doesn't feel like the Wolves have like the optimal front court partner for Carl Anthony Towns yet. The, you know, no. Juan Hernan Gomez is, he's fine. Um, but defensively, like that's not going to help. And so is, do you think like that's part of Culver's development is, Hey, he played a bunch of one last year, but maybe we're going to see more of him at the four, um, uh, this year, or is that not really something you think viable long-term because you did just mention his size. And so like, he should be able, I would think to hold up positionally there, but they also didn't really play him at the four um, pretty much at all last season. No. And yeah, I think it's, 
yeah, I don't know. It's something that's going to be interesting to figure out because I think right now, you know, obviously, you know, Rondé Hollis Jefferson and Ed Davis, those are kind of stopgap pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I really like Ed Davis, but, you know, it's not like, you know, he's a, you know, this dynamic player. He's a fantastic role player. Um, yeah, I mean, if those guys can absorb, you know, Hernan Gomez, Rondé Hollis Jefferson and Ed Davis, you know, can try to find some way to complement there and not and decrease the need to do those more desperate lineups, like doing something like Culver, you know, guarding fours or something, which I would think maybe like in an emergency, like probably wouldn't be, you know, like a um, regular thing. Um, and then I guess if they're considering Josh Akogi at the four as well, that would probably limit his time there. I would be, I'm an endless lot. I mean, this gets me pretty much to my next question, but starting lineups are, we know they're arbitrary, but what do you think ends up being this one for at least the start of the season for this team? Because they're sort of the, they're among the, the squads where it feels like it can go where they just don't, it's not set in stone. And like, maybe they'll play matchups a little bit, but do you think there's going to be like a five man combination they prioritize there to start the season? Probably just oh, start the season. That's, that's hard to say. Cause we kind of saw it last year where, um, you know, the lineup really changed night to night. That seems to uh, become more common overall. Like I haven't looked at data for this, but the Raptors do that a lot where it's like so matchup based, especially it feels like in the front court now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean like the Raptors, you know, like you're having Lowry and Siakam and nobody, <laughs> you know, beyond that, we'll see. Um, but the Wolves, I think it could be kind of similar, you know, we're like, okay, Russell's starting Towns is obviously starting, um, you know, and then I think it's really interesting there. I mean, do you have, do you move, do you start Russell at the two because he can, um, and start Rubio, or do you have Russell start at point guard and have you know Okogi, Beasley? You know it's, it's kind of hard actually not to see Beasley in the starting lineup. So what Russell? I guess it would be safe to say at least one of Rubio and Beasley will be starting, given like how much they're being paid at the moment. Yeah, I would think so. I don't think you're putting. Um, Beasley off the bench or Ruby off the bench. Yeah, those both of them at least off the bench. And then probably Okogi at the three, Hernan Gomez at the four, and Towns, which I don't really know if that gets you long term, but I imagine that we'll probably see that switch up quite a bit. That's probably the most traditional lineup, though, that I could think of for them. I am interested to see like how it works with, because you're right that Russell can play the two, and I feel like he and Ricky Rubio could kind of complement each other nicely, where D'Angelo Russell has been a good enough catch and shoot guy throughout his career, and then you're putting him next to someone who is uh, there's, there's really like no such thing as a plus point guard defender, but Ricky Rubio is like a really like disruptive defender. And that's, you know, definitely uh, someone that you want alongside Russell, given his like own defensive track record. Yeah. I still remember when uh, Flip Saunders called Ricky Rubio, part of his gamblers anonymous for <laughs> going for all the steals. I'll never forget that one. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, those are good points though. Um, it's okay if your answer here is the same as the lineup you just gave, but um, what do you think their closing lineup should be in tight games? Or is there maybe, you know, you already mentioned Josh Kogi at the four. Is there like maybe an, an offbeat lineup that you would like to see them test out this year, independent of any time of the game? Um, so I don't, gosh, it'd be, it'd be so much easier. I think if we knew what Anthony Edwards was going to be, right. I think that would really answer a lot of it. I think you got that Beasley on there, Hernan Gomez. I mean, he can stretch the floor. Um, does bring a little bit of size towns, obviously some, this is what I struggled with in Ricky Rubio's first stint. There are several times in late game situations where I think the wolves are bad at closing out games, 
in part because not like because of like what Ricky Rubio you know does wrong necessarily, just what his weaknesses are, and that's his shot. And I think teams would rather dare Ricky Rubio to beat them in crunch time than let Malik Beasley you know take that shot or mm-hmm. get to the basket or put the ball in Carl Anthony Towns' hands. So teams would sag off him. And, you know, double Kevin Love or someone, you know, who is actually more of a perimeter threat. And I think that's what I worry about with him now because the shot, I mean, in some cases it's improved a bit, but I don't think it's enough to where teams are going to really fear it and stay home on him. So I don't think you want him in for that. So I think you want to find a way to bring in another guy and have Russell run the offense in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I think that makes sense because, as you said, his shooting has improved, but like the numbers are different from reality because so last year he's 41.4% on catch and shoot threes, which is a fantastic number, but there's an opportunity cost to those looks because like, you know, you're talking about the, his previous era in Minnesota, um, there's not a body near him. So they're doubling Kevin Love. Like in this instance, they're, you know, cramping the lane. They're going to make it harder for Russell or they're going to be, you know, doubling towns. And so just not what he does to the um symmetry i guess of like the offense or like the the defensive mm-hmm. bodies like that is probably more hurtful than him shooting 40 percent on catch and shoot look so i think i'd i don't know how you necessarily flesh out like their best you know closing lineup and again it's a lot of it's matchup based but if you're looking at the most common one i do think i really agree with you though where he probably shouldn't be a part of it on on a consistent basis yeah and i mean it's you know for the rest of the game for you know 45 minutes it's probably fine to have him out there in right. most cases. Um, but yeah, I think that's one situation where he's just so limited. And I think we've seen, you know, his struggles as a finisher, even getting, you know, at the basket, like that's a real problem. And I mean, I don't, D'Angelo Russell is by no means, you know, the most efficient player in the NBA. There was a lot that came out after the trade for Wiggins where it's like, Hey, they're similarly inefficient. Um, <laughs> but I think that he's still more of a threat. Yeah. Like just you know, the to ability to hit threes off the dribble is like a, it's a difference maker, even if he's only hitting them at like a 34% clip. Right, exactly. Uh, what is uh, the, right now looking at this roster as currently constructive, what is the the biggest gaping hole that they still need to address? And if it is, you know, the four spot, um, what comes after that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the power forward spot. I think, you know, if like, if this can be considered a hole, um, I think, think probably the glut of wings and you know seeing like you know are these all pieces that you can find playing time for mm-hmm. or you know is this you know where you could because Gerson Rosas is not shy about you know rehoming a player if he can thinks he can find a better fit or better talent elsewhere so I mean I would like to see him possibly you know that pos- that sorted out because it seems like for now that, I mean, they're stocked in the backcourt and on the perimeter. I mean, we haven't even talked about Jake Lehman, and Jake Lehman right. is going to play this year, and he's a 6'10 combo forward. They, yeah, their, their wings are like awkwardly sized, too, where it's like, okay, yeah, Jared Culver might be the size of a traditional wing, but he doesn't have the speed of one. Um, and like you said, Jake Lehman is just so, so big, and he was playing well at the beginning of last year, too, uh, before his injury. So maybe that's someone who can help, but they are kind of all over the place at like the, the two, three, four spots where there's so many different ways that they could go with it. But, and like looking out from afar, like my perspective, I don't necessarily know, know like what's the best way to be 
or like what's the best makeup to be confident in because while they do have a glut of wings like how many of them can you count on to like have a, a two-way impact where it's like um, there's going to be a spacing trade-off with Josh Akogi. There's going to be a defensive trade-off with Juan Hernan Gomez. And I don't even think you could really, at this point, I don't think he should be playing the three uh, at all. Um, so I, like, that's just, a, that feels like a huge question for them as well. Yeah, it's, it's really a unique thing. And I think it'll be a lot like last season where they look at it through the first half and then they decide, you know, all right, this isn't working. And maybe they don't, I don't think you want to overhaul your roster to the extreme that they did last winter, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that they'll be shy to, you know, evaluate and say, okay, this piece fits, this doesn't fit. Um, What can we do to find something that's, we think is better. So you do think, and this was something I mentioned as an example later on when I sent you an ally, but like, do you do think there's a chance then that they do shake things up um, mid season again, like not to necessarily the extent where they went all in on D'Angelo Russell last year, but uh given at where this team is, where I, I guess like you still expect them to be super aggressive with, as you said, rehoming players if they don't look like they fit. Yeah. That's the one thing with this front office that I've kind of realized that, you know, they're, they're very aggressive and I think it's such a departure from the past. Like I saw one tweet. I can't remember who it was. It was from a Wolves fan that I wasn't familiar with. Um, and I wish I saved the tweet cause I've referenced it so many times, but it was like Glenn Taylor runs the Timberwolves like a family business and Rosas will literally trade anyone if they can do better. <laughs> like, it's such a contrast. Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, so I fully believe that they're always looking at options to make the team better. I know every team says that, but I do imagine that they are getting involved in as many calls as they can to see, you know, if there's any way to make a move. Obviously, you know, owing that pick to Golden State is hangs over a little bit, but yeah, I. I do expect that they'd have their ear to the ground, especially since, you know, you look at this and you're like, this roster doesn't make the most sense together. Mm -hmm. And something kind of has to give may need to be shuffled unless, you know, all these players turn into multi-positional marbles. And it's, you already identified Culver's potentially if he odd men out, but it's the, the one that sort of tips the scales is like, it's the Culver Edwards Beasley like trio being here where it's okay. They're, they're, they're like, all wings, I guess, but like Beasley really, I almost look at him as like a one position guy who should be playing the two. And then that's going to get in the way of some Russell minutes, potentially, if you want him to play with Rubio and you don't want him defending threes. Um, What does Anthony Edwards do like defensively? He's not, um, you know, looking at his size, like, is he going to be able to match up with some of the bigger wings? Beasley and Edwards are pretty similar in size too. I think they're both six, five. Yeah. It does seem like Edwards is, uh, I don't know if the word would be stronger, but like has more girth to his defensive stance where, Beasley has always looked like a guy when you look at his explosion, like, oh, he should be good on defense. And then he's like, not <laughs> really. So right. um, that just makes it awkward. And then there's Culver where it's like, oh, he, you know, I actually he should play the four because it feels like he has the size to do that. But does he actually have the physical tools to like defend these bigger, quicker wings? And uh, so it seems like that trio is going to need that at least one of them um, long term, if not in the short term, is going to end up being moved. Yeah, and I kind of look almost to, I know we just talked about, um, you know, how important Okogi is because of his size, but, you know, he's also the one guy this administration regime didn't select. He's the one holdover um, from the previous um, management. So I think that he's an interesting guy to watch. I know a lot of newer GMs aren't as beholden to other guys' choices. Uh, so I think he's interesting to watch just for that reason, although I do agree with you because of his versatility. Um, you can find more places for him than you can maybe like Malik Beasley. 
Yeah, there's and the other thing with him too is he's just so cheap and has the team option for the season after this one. So for under seven million, you can get two years of Josh Okogie. And I don't know why you wouldn't like I know he's not like doesn't have a jumper right now, but just what he can do for you defensively, I would say across like three to four positions is definitely worth that money and much more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh so is it and you mentioned that the the pick that they owe to Golden State, uh top three protected this year, it does sort of loom over their direction. Do you th- do you think then it's fair to say that they've decided they're more win now than not, or is there still an element of TBD here where they might be willing to, I'm not going to say steer in to the skid if things don't pan mm-hmm. out according to plan, but they're not going into this saying like it's playoff or bust for us. Like that's why we got D'Angelo Russell. That's why we paid for Malik Beasley. Well, so I think there's, yeah, that's kind of a competing thought. I mean, you know, part of it too, it's like, your conference is just so good. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, the Grizzlies, they're a young team. I mean, I don't think you can rely too much on young teams and they looked promising, but you know, maybe they fall out. Maybe the Rockets trade hardened to the East or something. You know, those things are kind of, those things are factors that could determine, you know, where they wind up falling. But I do think that they're going for it. I do think, you know, like not that this is not reported. There is nothing out there with Carl Anthony Towns. But you look at the NBA landscape where, you know, he's the type of player that you hear the Romans about like, oh, yeah, that guy wants to go somewhere else and, you know, this or that. And it's like, so, you know, you do have to be winning, you know, to keep or at least going in a positive direction um, to keep these guys happy. Right. You know, and to want to, you know, keep a talent like Towns around. Um, you know, he's really the, the piece that makes this whole thing work. Like the D'Angelo Russell led team. That's not a. That's not the happy place. That's not the good place. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like I like Russell in some cases, but you know he has his own flaws. I mean, of course, there's always the way that you know guys get better and improve. But like this, you know, you need to win to show Towns that like, yeah, you can have everything you want here. You can be all NBA. You can, you know, reach the playoffs in Minnesota. I think that's an important thing to show him too. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's. To me, Carl Anthony Towns has reached a level where he's so good. Like I don't have, I didn't have any questions about him to throw your way. Like he's to me, he's like top ten, top twelve in the league right now. He's only twenty five. I know people can make fun of his like defensive motor at times, and then obviously some of his defensive reads. But like he is such a monster on the offensive end with all he can do. And I know it was only a thirty five game sample last year, but he also averaged like four point four assists per game really quietly. And so he's so dominant already that I do feel like there's this, and I would argue that the, you know, the pick they gave up to Golden State would imply the sense of urgency, but it doesn't really matter how many years he has left on his contract. If you have this top 10, top 12 player right now, you want to be certainly in the mix for a playoff spot, no matter how, you know, hellacious the West might be. Yeah. And I think, you know, New Orleans saw that. I mean, Dell Demps got a lot of criticism, but from the day they drafted Anthony Davis, Probably not the best comparison to make, but you know, from the day they drafted him, they traded for Ryan Anderson, they traded for Eric Gordon, they got all these guys thinking like, yeah, we got to win, you know, like this guy's gonna be phenomenal. We want to go places, and like, but I think that's the mindset that you have to have, and like, yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes you get unlucky and guys are hurt. Yeah, like maybe don't time. give Omer Ashik five years, like that. Those yeah, types of things. <laughs> I mean, in any scenario, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to, I think, have that mindset. You know, and at least show that you're moving in a positive direction. Because, yeah, like there's no real incentive for this team to lose. But I do think that the idea of having that play in tournament where you're like, well, maybe we don't get to eighth. We just got to get to 10th. 
And then once we get to 10th, we just got to win, was it two or three in a row? And then you're in. I mean, like, that's exciting. That's, you know, some more hope than you had in previous years where by February or January or sooner, like, you knew that it was pointless and you were just watching for the sake of watching. Yeah, that the play-in tournament, I'm still not sure whether I like it or not. I think that the 9 or 10 seed should have to win probably more than twice to get in. Like, once they face the higher seed, like whoever wins the 9-10 game, I feel like should have to beat um, 7 or 8 twice rather than just beating them once. But it it supports everything that you just said, and it changes the context of how we view um, teams that are in the mix for things where the Timberwolves can, can like, really feel uh, – I don't know if you want to say feel really good, but they're going to consider themselves – within that fracas that's chasing the um, one of the top 10 spots. And then it's like at the same time, when you look at the West still, there's only one team so far that's just removed themselves from that conversation in the Oklahoma City Thunder. And so you're mm-hmm. still in this like 14-team tussle, and that's where things get so difficult to evaluate. Yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see how teams respond to this. And, you know, I, I think the one thing that I wish with the um, – not to get too much – on a tangent but i think one thing i would like to see um you know like if if the seventh seed has like an eight game lead (laughs) like don't don't have them like lose back-to-back games and it's like well that was for nothing you know like that sucks that's not something that people want to see and you know the seventh team is the seventh seed in the west is probably gonna be pretty good and a team that people actually want to see in the playoffs um i think that's the only concern that i really have with it uh, but I do like the idea of adding, you know, stakes for, you know, just about everybody. Yeah, there's like, so let's let's use this past year as an example. The seven seed Mavericks were seven and a half games better than the eight seed Portland Trailblazers. And they were um, eight games better than both the Suns and Grizzlies who were nine and ten. And so it's like the idea of them, if they have no injuries, like if, you know, if the reason they lost is because Luka Doncic was done for the season at that point or something, like then... I guess my my sympathy is limited because I don't want to watch um, a Doncicless Dallas Mavericks in the playoffs. But I totally get what you're saying. If I was the seven seed or even the eight seed, like there are going to be years where in the West certainly, like the eight seed is just going to be so much better than the nine, the ten seeds. And so it feels like there might need to be some tweaking done there. Yeah, and I guess they'll see. You know how it goes. Um, you know, it's probably going to be something that they adjust over time. You know, I'm sure we'll have a lot of our, you know, our favorite things in sports where we overreact and make sweeping rule changes to one event. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see how they navigate that. Um, but I guess the other side of that is like, okay, if you really are, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight games better, like just go beat them. <laughs> Don't lose two times in a row. You know, <laughs> that's that's also a fair point, though. Like, if you're full strength and you lose to the, you know, you lose two games against what are supposed to be inferior teams, I think that's that's also a fairly fair stance. Um, I know this is this is a tough question now, and you can I said that you could t- interpret it however you want. Like, if you're baking in that you think there's going to be a shakeup or that they're going to do um, that something happens in the middle of the season, but what's a realistic win target for this team and place to finish within the Western conference this season. Oh gosh. I wish I, oh, I saw like, um, uh, 72 season, um, adjusted schedule. Win I mean, you can give me the 82 game equivalent. I have my sheet here that I'll plug oh, in. Do you? Nice. So, um, and, but yeah, yeah, that screwed up everything. I looked at over unders at one point. I was like, I don't even know how to like, what does 36.5 mean in a 72 game season? <laughs> yeah. So it's like what a 500 team. Um, Okay, so this team is probably not a 500 team, Um, unless a lot of other stuff goes wrong for everyone else. Uh, Let's see. So I'll do it in an 82-game season because that's how my brain is going to work. Perfect. 
you know, if they go from 19 and 65-ish games last season, that's probably what. So if they were 19 know, last season would have been the equivalent of um, 22 overall. Oh, yeah. They got to be better than that. You know, I feel like yeah, that's a really tough question. I mean, I don't think it's out of the question for them to win 30, but I could also very much not see them winning 30 games. That feels like a like a good number. So 30 would be like 34 over the course of an 82 game season and so um that's less that's fewer than a 15 win jump just because they only played and I probably even did their calculations wrong on the other one because I forgot that they weren't among the teams that were in the bubble. So uh, right. the adjustments there, but 34, like, like for me personally, but like 34 to 39, like feels like, oh, it, like looking at 82 games, 34 to 39, like that pace feels like where they're at, which if that happens is if they're comfortably under 500, let's say, and mm-hmm. like, is that a failure for them? Or is it just like, again, they still have so much equity in this youngsters that we have to do better, uh, do a better job of evaluating their future independent of the move for D'Angelo Russell that they made. It's just, it's so wonky because they have these two players on max contracts already. Well, and I mean, I think the thing that's easy to forget, and I just even forgot, you know, for a moment now, like we didn't really see Carl Anthony Towns last year. So, you know, obviously getting Carl Anthony Towns back for, you know, the majority of your games is going to make a difference. I think having someone who can run the second unit you know, is going to make a difference. Yeah. Um, so all these little things, I think, you know, that could add up to make a big impact, you know, so maybe 34 to 39 is probably right on the money somewhere in there, which yeah. I felt like, you know, is probably par for, you know, a lot of, like a lot of the old Ricky Rubio teams. <laughs> but unlike those teams, it feels like that this could just be a stepping stone to something better. Do you think there's a feasible path like without disaster striking for the rest of the West, like there, there will barely be two to three teams that I think, or, you know, one or two teams more that pull out of it. Let's say the Timberwolves aren't one of them. They're fairly healthy. Do you think there's like a feasible path to them getting over 500 this year? Or is that just really not something you envision being in the cards? So it's definitely not an expectation. I mean, I think you see if, you know, you know, if like, here's the other thing too, I think that we overlook a lot. I know that like, um, I remember when, who was coaching the team at the time? Um, maybe it was Sam Mitchell. Maybe it was early Tom Thibodeau. Um, oh, just God. talking about like one way to, you know, like easy way to add shooting is just make the guys that you already have better. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go out and do all those things. So let's say um, Jarrett Culver, you know, he is really a 35 to 40% shooter. That's great. You just made your team a lot more, be- right. a lot more better, a lot better. Um, and same goes for the, the other guys on the roster too. Like so, there, especially when you're a young team, I think there's always the chance for that jump to happen. Uh, like, I mean, I, a lot of us like we liked Pascal Siakam, and all of a sudden he became a 25 point per game guy <laughs> overnight. Like, not saying that's what I expect here, um, but young players, like we, you never really know, you know, when their moment is going to come, and you know, it's you never really know what that's going to look like either. So, you know, we'll have to see, you know, what guys have been able to do. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what a nine month layoff does to this team. Yeah. Cause I think that's the one drawback is you had the league's worst teams only able to scrimmage against each other and didn't get to, you know, have those live rounds. The other, you know, the better two thirds of the league did. Um, so assume there's no leg there and guys got better and, you know, Carl Anthony Towns is Carl Anthony Towns. Like I think, 
yeah, there's probably definitely some reason to think that they could, you know, push 500. Yeah, and the thing that I didn't even, like, that didn't compute for me until you just said it is it's going to end up being, from an NBA game, like more than a 10-month layoff for Carl yeah, Anthony Towns. <laughs> That's absurd. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you you wanted to talk about, something that's undercovered about this team? Do you have any you know, very strong takes on Jake Lehman? Are we going to see Jared Vanderbilt this year? He's like a siren song of mine. Just anything I missed that or didn't get to that you want to talk about? Um, man, I feel like we covered a lot of ground on this. Yeah, no, like I, I wrote about Jake Lehman. I didn't really have strong Jake Lehman opinions. I'm like, yeah, he's a guy. <laughs> like, he should be able to shoot better. He shot well in college. Like, Yeah, what is, he's at like sub 30% for his career. It's and, really bad. And, and like, he doesn't play a lot. I know for guys, like, inconsistent playing time makes such a difference. But yeah, like, it should be better than it is. Like, you know, typically guys who shoot well in college, you know, or decent free throw shooters should shoot better than 30% in three in the NBA. Yeah. Uh, do you think that he's, that we see, like, is he going to be like a, like a, you know, a 15, 20 minute per game player for this team right off the bat? Because I know you he know, was there last year, but obviously the you know the cosmetic makeup of the roster has changed since since last season. Yeah, I wonder if it'll depend on how things look in um, training camp because I think that having that um, familiarity with the team and the system is probably something that favors him a little bit mm-hmm. and being able to adapt to that. Um, I don't think he was there when Ed Davis was there, but I mean, there's a lot of guys here who are familiar with the Vanderpool system you know, defensively. I want to see how that kind of comes together. Although it didn't really happen last year. Like I wrote about this, the Alan Crabb trade, like, you know, they told us, you know, when they traded for him, they're like, Oh yeah, he's familiar with, you know, David Vanterpool and like, they go back and, you know, like that familiarity is going to help him a lot. We think we could turn him around and, you know, who knows, you know, maybe he's a piece for the future. <laughs> it's like that was a disaster. <laughs> like he played two games and looked horrible before they just, I think just waved him. Um, so I think, you know, we should hopefully see, you know, some, if this team can maintain consistency together and actually, you know, start to um, gel, I think that, you know, we'll say a lot. Um, Can you give, can you placate my appetite for Jared Vanderbilt takes it all? Do you think that he gets a shot to fill any of those four minutes this year? Hey, they they might, you know, everyone's going to need bodies at some point. It's going to be a weird season. I know that the Timberwolves don't have a lot of firm answers on there. Um, Especially, you know, if you're like, well, you know, you have a vet like Rondé Hollis-Jefferson and Ed Davis, but those guys aren't around forever. So, you know, if he can shine in the moments that he does get. And, you know, this is also a really, you know, accelerated season in terms of, you know, how many games and however many days. So, you know, the guys are going to need rest. Unfortunately, guys are going to get hurt. So there's going to yeah. be, there should be opportunity for him somewhere along the line. Yeah, I wasn't. I don't want to use the word unhappy about the RHJ signing, um, but I was hopeful that just because Jared Vanderbilt like plays with this unhinged motor where he just covers a ton of ground mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily disciplined ground, but I just love like from what I've seen of him, I love watching him. And so I thought he was going to get a real chance, but they re-signed Juan Hernan Gomez. They have Ronnie Alice Jefferson. They they get Ed Davis. So um, I was a little bit disappointed just because I wanted to see him more. So I'm hopeful that he gets to see the floor for good reasons. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, Derek, thank you so much for doing this uh, with me as usual. It's become basically an annual thing. I appreciate you giving us like an, an hour of your time. If you guys are not following Derek on Twitter, 
please remedy that immediately. He is at Derek James MBA, spelled exactly as it sounds. I always love those easy to say Twitter handles. And as mentioned at the top, uh, he covers the Minnesota Timberwolves for the a Wolves a Wolf Among Wolves blog and Canis Hoopus, and he also covers the Seattle Storm for the next. Uh, Derek, once more, thank you so much again, and I think as you've come to know at this point, you can rest assured that I'm definitely going to be bothering you again in the future. You know what? I won't mind. <laughs> Thanks again, and take care. Hey, thank you. <laughs>